All right. Now, we are, Lord willing, going to finish this series today. And uh, don't quote me on this or think I'm promising it, but we might actually finish early because we don't have tons of material to finish. Um, let's see. Where should we start? Let's start in James 4. In fact, I don't, I'm not going to say too much about James 4 because... We're actually going to be there in the morning service. We're back in the book of James. I'm going to be preaching through at least some of this passage. Uh, but I want to touch on it here because it has, has to do with what we're talking about. All right, what we're talking about, though, is Bible study is a joy, intended to be a joy. And uh, how to overcome barriers, one of the big things we discussed the last couple weeks, uh, just human experience, uh, most of us find that... Uh, Left to ourselves, we don't necessarily just roll out of bed and love the scriptures. Uh, some of us would say, well, when you're newly saved, uh, there was this newness to everything. But if you've been saved a while, you might find that waxes and wanes. And sometimes we ask why. And again, sometimes what we're looking for is like this. Now, there can be a major sin that we need to repent of that will restore that quickly. But in general, it's a cultivated passion. We'll talk more about that in the morning service too. It's a cultivated passion. We, we feed that. We feed the Spirit day by day, choice by choice, priority by priority. And over time, we find the Word of God goes from duty to a desire to a delight. That's something that is built. And the more we see, the more we uh, grow in our discipline, and the more we see the Word of God for what it does and what it spares us from and what it tells us about God and how beautiful and incredible and powerful it is. I'll tell you, one of the joys of being forced isn't the right word, but you know what I mean. As a, as a preacher, let's say you're going to go through something like the book of Romans like we have here. And there's a lot of material in that book. And to be forced to grapple with it with spiritual logic and connect the dots and why is this here and what's this emphasizing? It's one of the most fruitful things for the guy that's doing the preparation. I've always thought or long thought that the, the person who gets to prepare to teach usually gets more out of it than anybody else because of what the Lord is instructing them in. And you usually can't possibly share it all. I know it sounds like I probably do try half the time because our messages are long here. But it's a precious thing to see. And, and you look at what God does via spiritual logic. You look at uh, the book of Romans is incredible. The preemptive questions that are asked and those meganoita, those God forbids. And, and you realize the Spirit of God just cuts us open and reveals to us. There's so many inward thoughts of, of, of mankind in general revealed in that book. It's an amazing thing. So the more we see that, the more we grow in our love for the Scriptures. But it is a, it's a cultivated passion. And uh, we were talking about some of the barriers we face. Um, internal sin and guilt that can be the result of sin. It can also be the result of just spiritual attack. Uh, some of us know the wet blanket, right? There's times where, you, as far as you know, you're in fellowship with God. There's a dampness, a blackness placed over you, a despondency, a, a fear. It doesn't make any sense. And... Uh, and at those times, when there's honestly no sin between us and God that we're, that we're aware of as we search our own heart, we have to trust that God's greater than our heart, like it says in 1 John. That our standing in Christ is what it is. It's a precious thing to know that. Sometimes condemnation will just come upon us for no reason. It's just part of uh, the warfare we face walking through this Christian life. Uh, we spent some time in Romans 7, and that's uh, unbelievably 
crucial passage at understanding the war we face as believers. And uh, again, at the time I mentioned, I've talked to, I don't know how many people over the years that have described the battles they're having. And to be able to tell them what you just described me, the one that we call the greatest Christian who's ever lived faced the same thing. It's, it's right here in Romans 7. All the major points you just told me are right here. <laughs> and uh, God puts those in His Word. It's a, it's a wonderful thing to read and think, you mean Paul fought the same thing I did? Yes, he did. Paul had the same uh, flesh that you and I have. And then we were talking about external distractions that come and just the practical side. Let's just share. Let's just have some interaction on this. We're all different. What are some practical things? Let's say you personally are sitting down to, this is your time set aside, you're going to open the Scriptures. What are some things that distract you personally? You know, if they're, if they're, if they're there, or if they get in here, they will distract you and they will make the time unfruitful. What, what are some of them? The magpies outside in the morning. The mag... <laughs> and they're illegal as shoot, unfortunately. Did I... Is that recorded? But magpies can be real annoying. Um, yeah. <laughs> I know I won't say who because I don't want to get anyone in trouble, but I know of a particular store in town, and uh, they used to have these juniper trees right outside the front door, and the magpies would come nest in there, and uh, they would start attacking customers. And they'd fly by, and they'd try to hit you in the head when you walked in. Well, that, that's great for business. And so they would go out and they'd rip the nest down. They'd rebuild them. They'd put trash in the nest. And birds would pull them out. And finally, one of the months, <laughs> juniper tree's gone. <laughs> Had enough of that, right? Because they don't get the memo. All right, so magpies. What else? What other things can be a distraction? Fatigue. Fatigue? Oh, that'll be a distraction, won't it? How about tomorrow's worries? Have you ever find if tomorrow's worries come in and that becomes my meditation? All of a sudden you look and 30 minutes went by or 40 or an hour or whatever and you go, what happened? What else? What other distractions? How about if the newspaper's sitting right there? Is that helpful? I'm telling you, it's not because I'm extra spiritual, it's because I'm not. I, I will tell you, I, am, I have got to be one of the most easily distracted persons on the face of the earth. I really feel that way. I, if there is any attention-getting thing there, it will get my attention. Uh, list, a uh, to-do list. In fact, one of the best pieces of advice I got when I was newly saved, an older godly man I knew, he said, Here, here's what you should do. Get a pen... Get a piece of paper, and as you're sitting there, you're having devotions, and you think, oh, I've got I've to bring the trash to the dump on Tuesday. Write it down, stick it behind you. Forget it. Keep going. Keep a list so you can delegate those things to a list and drop them so that you don't sit and think about it the whole time. So it is a war. I, I mentioned last time I heard of a pastor who took all the dust jackets off his books in his office because the colors distracted him. Now, that wouldn't bug me. But it bugged him. Uh, if I have email dinging at me, that's me. Some may not be that way. Uh, 
I, I, I have to have the dingers and stuff off. Uh, they, they will, they, and they come at the most, you know, weirdest times sometimes. All right, what else? We, I think we get the point, right? It is, so we need to do as much as we can to show respect. It's kind of like if you, uh, you were having an important government official to your home, would you try to pick the least distracting, most accommodating and respectful time you could? You would. Uh, you know, sometimes we're not careful to treat the king of heaven that way in our, in our meetings with him. So just practically, there's stuff we can uh, set aside. And then we were talking about just the world system. Let me read these. I read these last week, but let me, let me just read them again. Okay, case studies here illustrating this. Somebody says, I, and let me preface it by saying this. If you are too busy to be in the Scriptures consistently, you are too busy. Period. Yes, I mean that. We make time for what's important. Now, sometimes we're busier than others. Sometimes we don't have as much time as we would like. But if you, have, if you say, I have no time for that, something is probably out of place. And so there's some case studies in that. Here's, uh, they just, just, it, here's the illustration in here. Sarah wants to grow as a Christian, but she claims she doesn't have time for Bible study and prayer. After work, she runs her four boys. And by the way, I didn't write this. This is just, you can just as well say Sally Sue. It doesn't matter. That's just the name they picked. She runs her four boys to practice in games after work. By the end of most days, she's exhausted from trying to keep up with work and schedule. She's glad her boys are keeping busy, so they won't have time to get involved with the wrong crowd and end up in trouble, but she doesn't have time to be in the Scriptures. Okay, in case another one was, Jason and Alice are devoted to their family. They schedule regular family vacations and weekend outings to show their kids they love them. They want the best for their kids to keep up with the extra cost. Of their vacations and outings, Jason and Alice have to put in extra time on their jobs. They're willing to make the sacrifice, though, so they can have quality times with the, together as a family. Their only regret is that their emphasis on quality family time crowds out their time for church and especially personal time with God. All right, now, are those two situations realistic? Sure they are. I think some of us have... I've, I've been in... I mean, you changed the details a little bit, and I've absolutely been there. All right, so in either of those scenarios, are the things they're doing bad? Is extra family time bad? Absolutely not. Providing good things for your kids, is that bad? Nope. Uh, having activity. How many of you long, young people like to just sit and watch grass grow and do absolutely nothing? We have one. You like to golf. You know, I like to golf. I especially like to golf when I can vision being good at it. And then, then when I go, that vision crumbles. But I still have a nice time. Usually my back hurts afterwards. I just went in Alaska, and I'm not sure I should have. But I just watch golf on TV. That's better. <laughs> I never could. I never could do that. You can just see the grass. You can see that it's like watching paint dry. I never could get into that. So. Young people don't like to just sit. Is it bad to have activities for young people? No, 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 it's not. So part of the struggle in the Christian life with things like this, it's not overtly terrible things that crowd out closeness with God. It's good things out of place. 
It's a priority issue. It's a Matthew 6.33 issue. Seek ye first, preeminent, the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. And then he talks about the Gentile world thinks the opposite. Seek everything else, and then when those are fixed, you'll have time for God. The problem is you never have time for God. You don't. Young people especially, you will face temptations like this in life. Here comes some opportunity. You can make so much money if you get into this business. You'll probably be retired in five years. You just got to work my plan. But here's the thing. You got to be completely dedicated. I need you here seven days a week. Oh, what about church? I don't know. You can't have time for church. Here's the deal. In five years, when you're wealthy, when you, you, you can do what you want. You can be in church six days a week. You'll be able to give millions to missions. Think what you can do for God when you get to that point. You'll never get to that point. Because that's a seduction of the flesh to get things reversed. And it doesn't work. It doesn't work. So, sometimes it's a, just a priority issue. I look at, and, and by the way, sometimes good things have to be set aside so that the best things have a place. Seasons come in life. Obviously, it, I'm bivocational and have seven children, a.k.a. or young adults, I don't have as much time in this season of life than I might in 10 or 15 years. I'm okay with that. Well, actually, that's not true. I have the same amount of time, don't I? 24 hours a day. I won't have more time. I will just have, I'll have a different priority set in 15 years. But for where I am now, I better have my priorities straight. And so those situations we just read is somebody basically saying, I am strangling my own spiritual life by giving oxygen and energy to things that aren't quite or that aren't as important. I mean, think about it this way. If you abide in Christ, that's the only way you can really help anybody, right? Is your closeness with Him. So by neglecting my relationship with God to supposedly help others, I'm not pleasing God helping them or helping me. Because I'm just going to starve. So sometimes it's a matter of just recognizing, okay, where, what, Lord, what before the Lord, do I have time for this activity? Even something good, you may not have time if it crowds out that which is more important. <clears throat> and we were talking about laying aside weights. I mentioned some of my own life I've had just just things that are good, but we we are this is a dead weight. I know this particular thing, whatever it is, and it could truly be anything, almost anything. This thing's a hindrance in my walk with God. It's like a jogger carrying a backpack full of rocks. It's not illegal. It's perfectly allowed. But why would you? <laughs> why would you want to slow down in the race? Why would you want something that, that is that kind of encumbrance? Okay, so that's the idea behind laying aside every weight. All right, but going on, we're talking about overcoming barriers, overcoming these things. Uh, one of the big ones... Uh, guilt is established by an outside standard. In other words, we may feel guilty, but that doesn't mean we are or aren't necessarily. So a lot of times it does. But this standard right here establishes whether or not we've sinned against God in an area. So in this, if we realize we've sinned, 
We obviously confess it to God, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins to restore fellowship with Him. All right, James 4. We are getting there, I promise. James 4, verse 4. And again, we're going to... In fact, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to stop. I'm going to start in verse 6. We'll talk about verse 4 in the morning service. But He giveth more grace, wherefore He saith, God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace unto the humble. Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. I've had to tell myself over the years, and I've told other people on many occasions, there is no problem in your life that nearness to God won't deal with. It may not completely take the problem away. I'm not saying it will, but I'm saying it will give perspective to bear that problem. Sometimes here's what happens. I, and I've, I, I've caught myself doing this. I may not verbalize it, but, but what I'm doing, maybe some of you can identify. I will draw near to God when I take care of this issue. Or when I get this new job. Or when I get this paid off, or when I stop this habit, or, 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 or. Sometimes people sit and think, well, how do I know my motives are 100% pure? Well, I can solve that for you. They're not. Here's what I mean. We live in a sin, sin-cursed sin world. We have an indwelling nature. And the question, am I 98% pure in my motives? Who can answer that? If you're, If you know how sinful you are, that's going to beat you over the head constantly and will keep you from ever going forward. Again, I would say, let me ask you a question. <laughs> Let's say uh, you had some bacteria on your skin and you were flying towards the sun and you could. The closer you got to the sun, what would happen to that bacteria? It would burn off, right? So the closer you get to God, Guess what happens to the dross? Guess what happens to motivations? They get purified. Guess what happens to discernment? It gets sharpened. Guess what happens to vision? It comes back. Guess what happens to priority? It gets put in the right order. But if we adopt the position, I'm not going to draw near to God because I've got to fix this stuff first. You're not going to fix this stuff first. You can't. <laughs> Start by going after Him where you are and obey Him as you, as you go forward. So, all right, he says, God resists the proud, but giveth grace uh, to the humble. All right, let me ask this theological question. Again, we'll talk about it more in the next service. Why, what does that mean, and wh why does God resist the proud? Could it be said that the proud at times worship themselves? It definitely can be said that. You... All right, let me ask the question this way. Is this talking to Christians or unbelievers? He's talking to believers. Um, so, God's demeanor and attitude. If we are immersed in pride and he, he, He's resisting us, is He furious? No. Is He just sick of you? No. Does He want to throw you into hell all of a sudden? No, that's been taken care of at the cross. But here's the issue. Pride cannot walk in fellowship with Almighty God. 
God can only walk in fellowship with those that are drawing near and walking with Him and, and accepting His assessment of things, agreeing with Him. Because guess what? He's always right. And He'll always act like Himself. So if I, I'm puffed up and I'm, I'm worshiping self or I refuse to deal with sin or I refuse to acknowledge different things that I need to acknowledge, etc., and we can fill in the blank, I'm not in fellowship with God. I can't be. I'm basically saying I will be my I will be like the most high. I have a better idea. Well, that's not sinful. Yeah, but the Bible says, well, I don't I don't feel like it's sin. Oh. So you are deity now. Hmm? So God God resisteth the proud, but giveth grace to the humble. All right, turn to turn to Romans 7, the very end of Romans 7. And again, this I know one of the most fruitful, and uh, I will say this, before I ever preached on this, I sat through some outstanding uh, sermons on the whole book of Romans, but particularly Romans 6-8, through that helped me immensely. And uh, before I heard other people explain Romans 7 uh, to me without knowing it, I was the one doing that. (laughs) I... I remember hearing that preach for the first time in that kind of clarity. It just, it just, it was like a, a gate unlocking and light streaming in. It really was. I, I was, I was just astounded that God nailed me to the wall like that for my own good. I, I actually, frankly, if you understand Romans seven properly, it's sobering, but it's also encouraging. It tells you just how bad your nature is for the purpose of telling you you can't trust it. And it's far worse than you can imagine without a scriptural insight. So, again, Paul says, a wretched man that I am, verse 24, and he goes from trying to fix it himself to saying, who shall deliver me? He went from how to who? He understood he, couldn't, he could not change his condition. He says, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord, verse 25. And then we get into Romans 8, which is all about uh, walking in the Spirit. All right, now look at chapter 8, verse 1. There is, therefore now, no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Um, Let me just say this. Condemnation is God's death sentence, God's eternal death sentence. He's saying no Christian has that anymore and you can't have it. Well, wait a minute. Doesn't he say you have to walk in the Spirit? Does that mean you lose it? No, he's saying uh, one of the characteristics of those that are in Christ is they want to walk in the Spirit. That's something. Now, are they perfect at it? No. Do they fall? Absolutely. It, it's something we learn like children learning to walk. I think walking is one of the most perfect illustrations. The most perfect illustration because God picked it. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do. He's saying rules and self-discipline could not fix this problem in me. And that it was weak through the flesh. I think of J. Vernon McGee's illustration. He, he says it's like you, you put a roast in the crock pot, that piece of flesh, and you cook it for way, way, way too long. And then you go try to pick it up with a fork. What happens? The fork rips right through and it falls back in the crock pot. He says, now was the problem the fork? The law is like the fork. Was the fork the problem? No, the problem's the flesh. It's weak. <laughs> and he's saying the law was never an issue, but man's weakness is an issue. 
We can't keep it because we're sinful. Terribly, terribly sinful. But he says, God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemns sin in the flesh. Why? That the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Okay, then he said, look at verse 5 and 6. For to be, for they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after spirit, the things of the spirit. For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Now again, biblically, death means separation. He's talking to Christians here. To be carnally minded. In other words, to think like, and we'll talk more about the world in the next service, but to think like the world is to live in a kind of death. To not be in fellowship with God, to watch your spiritual life wither, to watch life make no sense, to watch your spirit vexed, it's like dying constantly. To be spiritually minded is life and peace. To be adjusted to God's thoughts is healing and direction and peace. And so he's teaching learning to walk in dependence upon the Spirit of God is utterly, utterly critical. And I mean, I could tell you, well, just depend on the Spirit. And if you're honest, you're going to say, you telling me that doesn't make me automatically know how, does it? It's like me telling you, it's like, I, okay, I have little Timothy here, and I say, all right, walk. Walk. Well, What's it natural for him to do? To want to walk, for starters, he wants to. He wants to walk like the big people around him. So does a new Christian. They want to walk in the Spirit. And they stumble and they fall on their nose and they get back up. And, they, and as they mature, it becomes more of a, a spiritual habit, so to speak, that maintains that, that's quick to deal with sin, that, that's more and more in tune with the mind of God through His Word. So it's a learned thing. Let me, uh, let me jump ahead. Look at 12 through 14, same chapter. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors not to the flesh to live after the flesh. In other words, your, your sin nature, here's what it'll do. It's like uh, you take a slave master who used to own a slave, and uh, here comes a new master, and he buys that slave. And so the chains are released, and... The new master's wonderful. The old master was the epitome of a jerk bag. Ruthless. And every time this freed slave walks through town, the old master's walking behind him, rattling that chain. Just rattling it. Now he has no power over him. The jurisdiction's been broken, that, that man's been bought out of under his power, but he's constantly reminding that slave, I used to own you. I'm going to get you back. You hear those chains? You know what it's like to be my servant. You remember that? It's exactly what your flesh does. It has no power in and of itself to keep you. It has no dominion, but it's going to keep rattling the chain constantly. You don't owe it anything. You do not owe your flesh a thing. You're not a debtor to live after the flesh. Or if ye live after the flesh, ye shall die. Again, it's talking about the withering in the Christian life. It will drive you away from fellowship with God. What's the opposite? But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. Now, uh, 
tragically in history, sometimes a phrase like that, I think, has been misunderstood to be a one-time explosive experience. If you're familiar with uh, Keswick theology, end of the 1800s, early 1900s, this was a big thing. And they would teach this sort of a crisis experience, you know, that uh, you're going to really have everything on the altar. Maybe you're fasting for days. Maybe you're off in the woods and you tell God, I'm, I'm going to lay here until you deal with this or I'm going to just die. And they have some kind of crisis experience. Maybe they feel something or see something or know something and they rise up out of the ashes and they've been mortified. By the way, that was the thinking that almost drove Harry Ironside into the insane asylum before he got his theology right. He actually had a mental breakdown because he, he was looking for this experience to mortify the flesh once for all. That's not what this is saying. Ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the flesh is talking about a daily walk of fellowship with God. Uh, remember, Every solicitation to do evil is two thrones presented before you. You never, ever, ever fight sin by fighting sin. You don't fight that temptation by saying, don't do it, don't do it, don't do it, because you're going to do it, because you're still meditating on the temptation. You fight temptation by saying, yes, Lord, and kneeling before the right throne. Oh, the difference is big. Big, big, big. But... That is a, it's a choice by choice. It's not a one-time event. It's a, it's a product of a consistent walk with God that the flesh is being starved and His dominion is, uh, it already is broken, but we're learning to live as though it is. And we, we more and more are walking in the Spirit. Um, so we have the person of the Holy Spirit, a supernatural helper indwelling to help with this. Depending on the Spirit makes all the difference in our attempt to live obediently to God, including spending time with Him in Bible study. Now that doesn't mean we're relieved of all responsibility. Okay, The Holy Spirit works through us, not for us. I mentioned before, when I, heard first, when I, when I read something Spurgeon said, it bugged me at first. Now, now I completely agree with him and understand what he meant. He said, as a general rule, the Holy Spirit will not do anything for you that you can do yourself. And, and what he was saying was, we need to understand in the Word of God what things are our responsibility. Now, when it comes to salvation, what's my responsibility? Believe in Christ. I can't save myself. I can't even take credit for believing because God moved first. But my part is to come to Christ, but trust Christ. That's the opposite of doing anything. It's trusting in what He has done. But in, in sanctification, as I grow... I do have a part in the mortification of sin. I have a will, choice by choice, day by day. It's like if I get up in the morning and say, well, I, I better get dressed. Oh, Lord God, please put my clothes on for me. I'm just going to tarry here in the secret place until you get my shoes on. Well, I got news for you. My shoes aren't going on uh, because that's my job, right? And so our, our sanctification process, it's a process, and it is, it is a, we, we share the responsibility. Now, I mentioned logos and rhema. Why is that important? When you read the statement in the Scriptures, the Word of God. Okay, why am I mentioning this? This is one of the biggest parts of this battle right here. This is one of the biggest parts of mortifying the flesh on a day-to-day -day basis. Okay? 
Uh, now, you take the word of God, that statement, there's the word logos and the word rhema, R-H-E-M-A. Logos speaks of the totality, the word of God as a whole. Uh, when it says Jesus is the word, it's not saying Jesus is a Bible, but it's saying he's the totality, the embodiment of the word of God. That's logos. But you take a passage like Ephesians 6. The sword of the Spirit, which is what? The Word of God. That's the word rhema. Rhema is talking about specific statements out of the Word of God. It's talking about a short sword. So here's what that's talking about in Ephesians 6. It's learning to, to internalize the Scriptures and to have these short swords available to combat... Remember how the devil... What is, he, what is he lobbing? Fiery darts. What are those? They are lies stuck in your head by the wicked one, and you better have a shield of faith and a helmet of salvation and a sword to whack him down. So the rhema is our swords that we memorize and we have ready to swing back in the battle of the mind. And, and you know, think, here comes some temptation. And there's this draw, and the war starts. Immediately the spirit within says, you can't do that. And then here comes a seduction. You've done it a lot before, what's one more? You've never been able to stop what makes you think you will now. So-and-so does it. They're a Christian. Nobody will ever see it. You were really good yesterday in your walk with God. You can handle this. Just repent later. What are those? Darts? Lies? I mean, you, you can't do this. I can do all things through Christ who strengtheneth me. Whack! You have to do this. I'm no more under the flesh's dominion. Whack! You're all alone. Oh, am I? So... You, you pull out the sword and you go to battle. That's why the Christian life is referred to a battle so much. The battle is in disciplining the mind to think God's thoughts so that I can consistently mortify the flesh in my walk with God and grow. But it is a war. Can I tell you something? If there's no war in your Christian life, you're probably not growing. If you have in the foggiest idea what I just said, it's probably because you're not growing. And, and I don't mean that to be unkind. It's absolutely a war. So then we, uh, in the middle of that walk of discipline, there's passages like 1 Timothy 4.7, exercise thyself unto godliness. That, uh, most of you know the term. It actually means to exercise or to practice naked. Now, Paul is not saying to do that. He's using a... A gymnastic term of the day, that's how their athletes, they didn't want to be encumbered by anything. It was men only. And that's how they would practice. Because they didn't want their clothes slowing them down. Thankfully, we don't do that one today. But the idea was, it's going to take effort. Now, all right, now let me ask you a question. Why, why does somebody, why bother exercising? I mean, okay, let me put it this way. Is exercise fun? How many of you think it's so, just, just raise your hand if this is you. It is so fun. I love the alarm at 5.30 or 5 in the morning. I love it. I actually do like getting up early, but the first 10 minutes aren't my favorite. So I love 
the alarm clock. I love the muscle stiffness. I love how the first five minutes on the treadmill feel. I love the soreness. I, I love it. You say, no, not really. Well, why in the world would you do it? Why, why exercise? Why, why, should, why would you? Give me a reason. Because you're convinced of what? Or should be convinced. You're convinced of long-term benefit. Now, why would he say bodily exercise in that passage profit the little? He's not saying don't exercise and get as big as you can. That's not what he's saying. He's, he's saying bodily exercise is important for this temporal life, but godliness, you know what you're going to take with you from this earth? You're not taking your home gym, but you're taking godliness with you. He's saying... We have to look at it like that, the long-term benefit. Uh, now, I found, here's a statistic I find fascinating, that uh, let's say you're going to buy a fitness center. I know you probably wouldn't, but let's say you were. One of the statistics fairly necessary to running that business is, here, here's what it is. Do you know what percentage of people who own a gym membership never use it? What percentage never use their gym membership after the first time or two? 80%, exactly. 80%. So you sell these memberships. Oh, I'm so happy for you to get in shape. Here you go. Here's your, And you know, 8 out of 10 of these people ain't coming back after three weeks. But they'll keep paying, oddly enough. Because there's a placebo in knowing, I've, I'm, I'm a gym member. <clears throat> When's the last time you went? 1956. But don't ask me that question, please. I'm a gym member. And, uh, you know, we can treat our Bible study tools the same way. I got a Bible. Oh, I got a rack of theological books. Oh, Sharnock's right over there. When's the last time you used those? <clears throat> I got books. I got a Bible. When's the last time you actually exercised in it? Oh, yeah, I have a Bible. Did I mention that? And I got some. You get the point. So? <laughs> Good for you. It's, it's like... Uh, a gym fitness equipment at home. And boy, if I, my kids can tell you, I'm, I go off and on in that one sometimes. Part of it's just the time. But man. So exercise ourselves. Okay, put an effort. So discipline is personal. In other words, it's like, okay, let's go back to exercise. Can you exercise vicariously? Here's a guy on the couch eating cheese puffs. And he's watching old Richard Simmons videos. Don't do that, but let's just say he is. If you don't know who I'm talking about, count yourself blessed. You, is he going to get in shape watching that? No. Our missionary biographies good. They're wonderful. Are you going to get in spiritual shape reading missionary biographies? No. It's like exercising vicariously. Now, I recommend it. They're terrific. But they don't replace personal discipline in the Scriptures. Nobody can be godly for you. Nobody. Your pastor can't be godly for you. Your parents can't be godly for you. Your spouse can't be godly for you. You. You must grow in godliness individually. All right, so benefits, and we'll be done. So much for being done early, right? No shock there. Philippians 4. In fact, let's just turn there. Quickly, we'll be done. Philippians 4. All right, Philippians 4, picking up verse 4. That's a new section. 
Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice, emphasizing how important that is. Now, where do I find the content that gives me that which I am to rejoice about? Salvation. Absolutely salvation. But where do I learn about that? Through the Word. Through the Word. Um, now, uh, any of you find it easier? Health's perfect, money in the bank, job's going great, everything's dandy. Oh, I'm just rejoicing in the Lord. Take that all away. Hey, hey, do I need it? Philippians, all right, Philippians called one of the what epistles? Prison. Because it's written by a guy in prison. Rejoice in the Lord, he's saying. How do you do that in, in prison for your faith? Because he knows truth about God. He knows enough about God's purposes, His ways, His character, His kingdom. He knows about the future. He knows about His position in Christ. He knows that locked in that prison cell, He can wield great power beyond it just through prayer alone. He knows that God's giving Him witnessing opportunities in that cell that He wouldn't have had any other way, and on and on and on and on. But His mind's filled with truth. Rejoice in the Lord. And uh, listen, we, we cannot rejoice in the Lord apart from knowing this book. It's not possible. It's just not, at least not in any kind of ongoing, uh, deep sense, it's not possible. We can see, oh, thank God for the trees and the rocks and the fish and those things. They are great. We ought to praise God for them. But His attributes, His character, His loving kindness, etc. So, <clears throat> He says, don't be anxious or careful about anything, but you, again, you replace that. That's always the way in the Christian life. You don't just stop doing the wrong thing. You replace it with the right thing. You replace worry, anything, anything that causes a twinge of worry. And again, this is ongoing. You're walking through your day. Here, here comes a twinge of worry. And uh, boy, the devil piles on that. Here comes the darts. You can't stop that. God doesn't care. It's never going to change. Blah, 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 blah. Battle of the mind starts. You just whack, whack. You pull out your sword, right? Start hacking down the lies with truth. And instead of sitting there taking the beating or sitting there meditating on the problem, you, you go to prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. You pour it out to God like He doesn't know, even though He does. And you thank Him. And you ask for what's needed. And, and then what do you find? Well, you find peace that passes understanding. And it passes understanding why? Because it makes no sense to the world. It may not make sense to you. Have you ever been... I, I wish I could say this happened more to me, but there have been seasons where I, I look and go, even in this weird circumstance or situation, which I really frankly can't stand, I have this tremendous, powerful sense of peace and expectancy and hope that has no earthly explanation. It can only be explained <laughs> through truth about who God is. That's it. That's the only thing that can explain that. The peace of God shall keep, it's a military garrison term, shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. So He gives us peace through that as we know His Word and as we walk with Him in fellowship. And again, uh, this section ends with Philippians 4.13 by an imprisoned man says, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. Anything in the will of God I can absolutely do if I walk in fellowship with Him. It can be done. So, uh, serving God, let me say this and we'll be done. Serving God, trying to serve God, 
without really knowing and trusting Him is going to yield tremendous frustration and discouragement. Trying to serve God without really knowing and trusting Him is going to yield tremendous frustration and discouragement. Conversely, knowing and trusting Him yields enabling strength for service. And of course, we see Paul here enduring tremendous hardship. Not because he was superhuman. Paul would tell you, if, if you imagine if you could interview Paul. You know, Paul, uh, pretty much every Christian for the last 1900 years or so counts you the finest Christian who's ever lived. Sort of a superhuman without the cape. Do you think that's true, Paul? He'd have crumpled to his ground and ripped his garments and said, you don't know the half of how perverse and wicked I am. I wrote about it in Romans 7, which you can read yourself, but no, 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 he would say. I have a magnificent God. I'm indwelt by supernatural power in the person of the Holy Spirit, and I can do it through Him. That's it. All right, got to stop. Anything else? Question or comments? Yes, sir. Uh, verse 8, Romans 5. Yep. Tells us how to act in Romans 4 through 7. Because it gives us instructions here on, on prayer and You said Romans 5.8 or Philippians? Oh, Philippians 5.8. Okay, I was like, Romans 5.8. God commendeth his love toward us. Okay, Flip. Philippians 5.8. But then he goes on to explain whatever's true, whatever's honorable, yep. whatever's right, whatever's pure, whatever's yep. wrong. He tells us these things. We're to dwell on them. Yep. We replace the wrong thoughts with the right ones, right? Anybody here think that? Who here would agree? The battle of the mind is the hardest battle. Amen. That this is where the Christian life is lived. This is the battleground. This, this is it. This is where the war takes place. The fiery darts aimed at your mind. The the uh, and again, you we. I think I said it a couple weeks ago that that other brethren have said. Somebody who knows how to worry already knows how to meditate biblically. They just have the wrong subject matter. Biblical meditation is not humdrum, 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 being in weird contorted positions and stuffed in a closet somewhere. Biblical meditation is constantly reminding yourself of biblical truth. That's what biblical meditation is. The idea of the word is like chewing the cud. And it's embedded in the heart, and it, it, it just it floods the mind with truth, and you keep ruminating on it. Um, but worry is just it's 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 letting yourself, letting yourself meditate on the wrong subject matter, and it has the opposite effect. It just makes you crumble. It it doesn't give you peace that passes understanding. It gives you it gives you fear that passes understanding, <laughs> doesn't it? And uh, boy, have I been there plenty. Anybody else? Question or comment? Addition. All right, let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word, and I pray you'd help us to, to grow in waging victorious warfare. I know, uh, Lord, we, we have to grow, and there's no shortcut for that. But I pray that we'd take steps forward and that all of us would keep going in our walk with you and, and uh, find increasingly a peace that passes understanding and to find increasingly that your word is true. We already know it's true, but you want us to see that by experience too. Help us not to adopt the lie that there's anything in the will of God that we can't do. Help us to believe you. 
Not the devil, not the world, and not ourselves even. In Jesus' name, amen.